This week we are talking about the Apostle Paul and you need to know about him and here's why. Besides Jesus, he is the most significant character or the most significant person in the whole New Testament. He writes half of the New Testament books. And up until this point, we have the 12 disciples of Jesus, fairly simple guys for the most part. We know um, they're fishermen and they, they're the followers of Jesus. They go wherever he goes and then they kind of uh, all the way to martyrdom confess their faith. But then onto the scene comes this intellectual giant named Saul, who later is Paul. But Saul steps onto the scene and he is a thinker. He is Jewish. He's also a Roman citizen, maybe because someone in his family down the line was uh, worked in the army or something like that. But somehow he has Roman citizenship, so he understands most likely Latin. He understands Greek. He understands the, the language of the Hebrews. And so he can have these conversations around the whole globe. And he is the tool and the instrument that God uses to reach the whole globe, essentially. So where does it start for him? And why is he so, so significant? So Paul, as we know in the Bible, is from Tarsus. And Tarsus, you're probably saying, like, that does not sound like Jerusalem. It's not. So Jerusalem would have been like the main center of the Jewish faith. And they had the diaspora, as they call it. So people went out all to these different nations, and they would set up their own churches and their own synagogues in these small towns. So when you hear about it in the New Testament, Paul went and he preached at the synagogue. This would have been kind of a small Jewish community that was there. Now, if you're not inside the temple of Jerusalem, Here's the situation. You are no longer um, around the scriptures in that way. You had to work somewhere else. And so they did that in these synagogues and they would study the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And they became experts. And we know this about Paul. Not only is he just a Jewish person, not only is he a Roman citizen, but he also comes from a family that believed in Pharisaism, which is he was a Pharisee. And what does that mean? This is not an official group like the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin. This is kind of like a watchdog society, a society that says, okay, as Jewish people, are we living the rules and the laws of the Torah? Are we doing a good job with that? So much so that, John, uh, that he later went to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. They wanted him to be like the ultimate Pharisee. So when he describes himself, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He says that he uh, followed all the laws. He was perfect on these laws, flawless on these laws and he was a Pharisee, and he was a zealot. we got to talk about that because that's really a foundation that identifies who Paul is in the New Testament. So we got to go back a little bit in history to understand kind of the underpinnings of why this makes sense. So imagine it was a time where we have Moses, and Moses is speaking and he's teaching, but the people are tempted to follow the ways of the unbelieving nations. And so one of these instances, they're tempted by the women of Moab, and the Moabites, and they were tempted by the women of Midian. And there's an instance where they're trying, they have this plague that's affecting them because they have so gone off kind of away from what God wanted. And here comes this guy with this foreign woman that was totally forbidden. And he goes into his tent, and you could guess what was happening in this tent. Well, a guy named Phineas takes his spear, goes to the tent, and puts it through both of them. And you're like, okay, that's pretty zealous. Well, he is a hero. The plague stops and everyone recognizes that with zealousness often comes this idea of violence. Speed ahead about 1300 years and it's the year 167 BC. There's a guy named, he's the emperor, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he has this idea that no longer are we going to allow Jewish freedom of religion in any way. Instead, you only can sacrifice to Zeus. So they go in, they totally sack Jerusalem and they kind of take the temple and they sacrifice literally a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. This so incenses 
This so incenses the people of Jerusalem, the, the good, solid Pharisees and the people that said, we have to stick trick to, uh, true to God's word, that we have a revolt. And the Maccabean revolt, and the main player in that is a guy named Judas Maccabeus, inspired by his father, who killed a priest who was about to do an unclean sacrifice on the altar. Inspired by his father, Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, leads them to freedom and eventually cleanses the temple. Why does this all matter? Because if you know anyone who's Jewish, they still celebrate a holiday called Hanukkah. This is the celebration, the cleansing of the temple, 160 years. So imagine, these are kind of these zealot factions of the Jewish faith that say we have to remain true to what God's word says. Paul comes from that family. So much so that it influences the way that he looks at things. So we're going to talk about that tomorrow. But before we get to that, I think there's a couple takeaways. Even though Paul was zealous to the point of violence, I think it's always convicting when you take a look at your own life and say, has, have I really, have I been zealous for the faith that I now have? Have I let Christ dwell in me and, and have I understood and spent time in his word so much so that I say, people have to know about it because God's word matters? Or have I become indifferent like the Hellenistic Jews at the time of the Maccabees or the, the Israelites at the time of Phineas? or a lot of the Jews at the time of Paul. Second question I think is this, have I looked inside to say, God, I need time in this word to change, not just a nation, but to change me. And it starts with simple steps. God, what do you say about my life? What you say about my life is true. Help me find my value in Christ and help me move forward with a passion that says the world needs to know about you because they don't know you yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we look at Paul and we're overwhelmed, really. His life itself is convicting because we see the passion that he has, the desire that he has to be the best Christian he can be. But he finds, it seems early on, his value in what he has done. Help us not find value in what we've done, but find value in what you have accomplished. We ask this in your name. Amen. Can the gospel of Christ accomplish the impossible? Let's talk about it in the life of Paul. So Paul, it's Saul, and later changed to Paul. So I'm going to just refer to him as Paul from now on. So Paul is a believer in the true God. He followed Judaism to the nth degree. It says he excelled above his peers. He was the Jew of Jews, basically. He's like the super Jew. Everybody, he wouldn't have been fun to hang out with, I know that for sure. And he followed all the rules and he did all the right things and he was zealous for the truth and purity and to get rid of anything that is bad and anything that is muddling the truth of God in this world. So he's very, very serious about it. And then, to this point, so the Christian church, right around this time, Pentecost gets 3,000 new believers. This is a big deal. So we have the Jesus rises from the dead, and then 50 days later, there's Pentecost, and it says, at Peter's sermon, right around that time, 3,000 more believers come. This church is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and to the point that it's going out of Jerusalem to other different places. And how does it go out to other different places? This is how. So right around that time, they elect different people to help out. The disciples are doing all kinds of different stuff. The apostles are doing all kinds of different stuff to help the widows and things like that. One of the guys they elect is a guy named Stephen. Well, Stephen was a righteous man and upright. The Bible talks about what an amazing guy he is. And he's before the authorities. And it's right there he goes on trial. And during this trial, he gives this whole history um, from Abraham all the way to that moment. And he calls him on the carpet for basically, you killed the Messiah. Right? He calls him on the carpet that this is what has happened. They, they get infuriated. 
and his face is glowing like an angel, it says, and they got so angry that they pick up stones and they start to like literally kill him or lynch him with these stones. And what happens is it says they laid their coats down next to a young man named, and you can guess it, Saul or Paul. Here's a couple other quotes about him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women. Meanwhile, the other spot, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And to the point that the church starts to spread because there's persecution in Jerusalem after this first martyr named Stephen. And this church starts to spread. And Paul sees this, right? Just imagine like um, you got a, a computer virus on one of your files and then it's like somehow spreading to another file. You're like, I've got to contain this. And that's what he says. So he gets permission from the high priest. He's going to go all the way to the city of Damascus and he's going to chase down these believers, the followers of the way. And he's going to get rid of them. He's going to drag them back to prison. So he's on his way there. This is the most zealous guy you can imagine. And on his way there, I don't know if he's thinking about like Ezekiel and this picture of what, what does God look like, but either way, he is there and he sees Jesus before him. And Jesus asks him a simple question, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and like, like a flip of a switch, it's not really a conversion in the sense of traditional sense, right? When I go through and I teach people the Bible, I've seen people who don't understand, maybe they're agnostic or maybe they have no idea or maybe they're atheists, and they now understand that Jesus is the Savior. Here's a guy who would say he believed the true God, but now God is going to change him. And so he goes to a guy named Ananias. Ananias is like, I don't want to talk to this guy. This is Saul, right? The guy who kills people, and he's chasing after people. And But God says, I have changed him. Right? So he's baptized immediately. And this is, kind of gives you an idea what kind of guy he is. Immediately he goes out into Damascus and starts preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, people don't like this. We don't know exact order here, but he preaches immediately. This is the order I like. He goes to Arabia for a while, and he comes back to Damascus, and he starts to teach. So much so that the Jewish people there don't like it, and so they say, we're going to kill you. So they have to let him down in a basket during night. So he goes to Jerusalem. What do you think he's going to do in Jerusalem? He starts preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's arguing with these Hellenistic, that means like influenced by the Greek culture Jews, and he wants to change who they are. And so they get mad. And they say, uh, we're going to kill you too. So the, Jew, the Christians now in Jerusalem, with all this tension of persecution going around, say to Paul, listen, you got to go. I mean, just imagine if like your worst enemy right now became the best friend, or on the other end, your closest ally right now becomes one of the enemy. This is like the story of Star Wars, right? The, the one who is closest becomes the enemy. And, and how hard that would be. That's what is happening in Jerusalem. So they send Paul away to a place called Tarsus, his hometown. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow and how that really changes. That time is significant. It's almost a decade that he spends in Tarsus. What's our takeaway? Two things. Number one is, and on a lot of levels, it can feel like God kind of owes me a favor. But it doesn't matter if you are persecuting the church or where you're at. Our own sinfulness means the only reason we have a relationship with God is because of straight his grace. Here's how Paul says it. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of the fathers. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, God has called you by his grace. That's one. Number two is there is nobody in this world that you know who is more adverse to the Christian faith than the Apostle Paul. And God did the impossible and changed him around. Let's pray. 
Uh, dear Lord, you changed Paul through your grace. You've changed us through your grace. Give us his zeal and his passion to reach not just the people that are close to us, our best friends, but instead let's reach out into a world where it seems like only your word can change hearts and see those lives changed around through the gospel so that they then, just like Paul, can be missionaries in your world. Amen. We've been talking about the life of Paul and we've been going through a whole lot of history and you're like, okay, what does that apply to me? And I think this one is really, really going to apply to you because depending on what you are facing right now, I'm sure you've got some kind of challenge. You've got something ahead of you and you're saying like, is this what God has in mind for me or does God have bigger plans for me? God in this section that we're going to look at is preparing Paul, I believe, for to do such amazing things. So God has already prepared Paul in a couple different ways. First of all, he is born in this family that is very, very strict. So they would have understood the scriptures very, very well. They would have read the Torah regularly. They would have spent time in the synagogue. They would have have gone through prayers. And you can even see that, like in Corinthians, he's taking Jewish prayers and kind of applying it to Christ. And so he's laying this foundation that he says, he already finds this zealous person. So he's preparing Paul in that way. He's preparing Paul in another way, in that not only is he Jewish, but he's a Roman citizen. And we know from other places and other sources that some of the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, under persecution had to flee to different places, and one of those places was Tarsus. So later on, when he's talking in in Athens, or he's talking to the Greek philosophers, it is not a surprise that Paul is able to go toe for toe for them. In fact, Paul is trained under one of the great rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. And so we have all these things kind of adding up. Plus, he's an intellectual giant. He is able to lecture. He's able to argue. He is able to articulate his points. He knows scripture from memory. He's able to preach. He's able to um, do amazing things and, and suffer in a great amount of stuff. So suffering, plus he's Jewish, plus he's Roman. He understands all these languages. All these things are coming to a head right now. So God takes this man who is so against the Christian faith and so against Jesus and totally flips him around. And you can imagine that in your own life. God has flipped around every one of us. That's really what repentance is. It's changing of direction. And he's taken Paul and says, I've got a new use for you. And so Paul's excited, right? Remember, he went to go to preach immediately and then he spends time in Arabia and then he goes back and he's ready to preach. He's ready to hit it. And God says, not yet. Um, So he People threaten to kill him, so he leaves and he goes to Jerusalem. And he's ready to preach, he's ready to go at it. And God says, not yet. And my guess in your life is you've had plenty of moments where you're kind of like ready to go. And God says, not quite yet. I have some preparing to do for the bigger plans that I have in mind. We see this a lot in, in history, and then I want to get to what, how God used that time. I was reading a Malcolm Gladwell book. This is a number of years ago, but he talked about the 10,000 hour rule which is basically to become an expert in a field, you need 10,000 hours. I'm like, okay. So he gave examples, and it's Malcolm Gladwell, so it's always a little bit of a stretch and push here, but he said the Beatles, for example, played 10,000 hours worth of shows. Um, I read a book by Steve Martin, Born Standing Up, if you've ever read that book. He talks about all the groundwork that happened as a comedian and testing these jokes and doing all these things. And then the moment came, he said, of wild success. And the problem was when he's at this high point is he can't even test his jokes anymore because he's supposed to be funny. That's kind of a hard deal. Instead of practice, 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 go. This is how God does this, I think, in the Apostle Paul's life. He now knows that Jesus is the true God. And so in Jerusalem, remember, he starts to preach and he's about to die. And so the Christians there say, listen, you got to go. You're such a hot button person. You got to get out of here. So they send him all the way to Tarsus in modern day Turkey. And he starts to spend time there. What would he do there? We can only guess, but I would guess a number of things. Um, He spends time in the family business. He's a tent maker. And they take goat hair and they make different tents for like travelers. 
mean, because if there's no hotels, you have to kind of carry your traveler with you, um, your tent with you. So he, I would guess he works in the family business, spent time in the scriptures, connecting what he knew from memory, connecting what he saw like in Isaiah, I'm a light to the Gentiles, right? And connecting that to what is reality in Jesus. And sometimes that takes one to maybe 10,000 hours. He is in, and maybe you don't know this, but the Apostle Paul from that moment is in Tarsus for roughly eight to 10 years. Eight to 10 years, I'm sure he was still preaching. I'm sure he's trying to convert him because we hear about some churches. But for the most part, I would guess God was just using that time for him to refine his skill and refine his understanding and to grow closer and closer to him because the things that God calls him to do and the suffering he is about to embark on takes a deep, deep base in Christ and an understanding that this is absolutely true in all the connections of the Old Testament. So where's the takeaway for you? Where God has you right now, I am not sure. But maybe God has big, way, way bigger things for you. And this is just a time of learning, right? It's not leadership and where we're at in life isn't just mountain to mountain to mountain. Sometimes there's a point in the valley where God grows us. That's where the grass is, someone just told me. And so fill up on God's grace. Fill up on understanding of who Jesus is. Grow closer and closer to him so that you are ready when the moment comes when God has bigger things for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for Paul. Uh, we see an example of someone who is zealous and you see someone who's so many things lined up to prepare for a moment in time so that he could be your missionary and your instrument. We pray that we take this time, if it's a downtime, seriously so that we grow closer to you, we grow closer in our, uh, and grow in our abilities so that when the moment comes and we're able to do that, we can shine and not shine for our own glory, but instead you are a light to the Gentiles and we can be a light to this world through our witness of you and what Christ has done for each of us on the cross. We ask this in your name, amen. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, most people know about three things. Number one, that he was Saul and he used to persecute the church. Number two, that God converted him on the way to Damascus. And three, that he did all kinds of missionary journeys. We're spending a lot of time kind of in between, kind of these silent years where God is preparing him, giving him time in his word so that he can understand and grow, so that he can be the missionary that God's called him to be. So while he is doing that, meanwhile, back on the ranch, so in Jerusalem, there's trouble. It is not going well. The, the 40s and 50s and 60s in Jerusalem is not a good time. In fact, Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. That gives you an idea. It is really difficult, and the Christian church is struggling to some degree. And the, But they hear word of something happening. Remember that persecution with Stephen and the church started to spread? They called the diaspora. So the church starts to spread. And while and there's a place called Pisidian Antioch. So up in this area... They had a group of Christians who were going and they're, you know, they're talking to the Jewish travelers who would travel by and they started to understand this. It's a big town, 250,000-ish people. And in this town, they're preaching and uh, they're teaching and slowly this church is growing. And soon some of the pagan neighbors start to believe in Jesus as the Savior. And it's going and going and going. So the people in Jerusalem start hearing about this and they're like, okay, we got to check this out. Right? We better, we better send some people to talk. And they send the nicest guy ever, a guy named Barnabas, who's like the son of consolation, I think is his nickname. So like he's, that, he's like the nicest guy ever. He goes there and he, he witnesses what is happening. And what would he see? He sees a changed community of people and he sees changed lives. And he says, this is the work of God. So now what do we do? Like this church is growing and growing and growing. We got to figure out someone. Who can teach these people in this Gentile town about who Jesus is? And he has this idea. What about Paul? 
So Barnabas is the one who goes over to Tarsus and recruits Paul to say, listen, I need your help. Paul has been on the sidelines this whole time, working, 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 and his moment of time comes, and he teaches for about a year in Antioch, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and things are going well, but then they hear from this prophetic word. Someone says, there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, and this is significant about Paul. This is why we're talking about it is normally when you hear about a famine, it's like batten down the hatches and protect home court right now. But instead, they say, let's take an offering because in Christ, all these churches, the churches now outside of Jerusalem, in Christ, all these churches are connected. So we got to do something about it. And two, for the first time ever, we get this idea, not only geographically that things are connected, but we start to see Paul as someone who says, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or you're free. It doesn't matter if, you know, all these things, all of that doesn't matter because in Christ we're of the same family and we're the same foundation and we're all in the same temple and we're all, you know, all of this is part of what Paul is teaching that in Christ all these barriers are taken away. And so they gather up this money, they go all the way down to Jerusalem and they meet with like the pillars of the Christian church. So we've got James who is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother, and then we have Peter and John. And so they're all there and they're talking about what they've been teaching and talking about like the, that the lines don't matter and Gentiles can hear about the gospel. And, and a thing that kind of plagues and connects Paul forever, which is the sufficiency of Christ. You don't need to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. They agree on all this, but they say, here's the deal. How about you take care of the Gentiles and we'll kind of take care of the Jewish church. And that's what they agree upon. So Paul, for the first time ever, this is making history because this did not happen in that age. There are not like um, Confucius missionaries going around. That's not how it worked. There wasn't Zeus missionaries going around. But for the first time ever, a, a body of believers said, other people need to know this. And so Paul, along with Barnabas, remember the super nice guy and a guy named John Mark, go to, I think it's Barnabas's home place of um, Cyrus, or Cyprus, sorry. And they start to preach and they teach there. And when they get ready to leave to go to different Antioch, John Mark says, hey, I'm not going. And we don't know the reasons. Maybe it's because it got super scary and it did get scary. They went all the way up to the top. They start to preach. People riot. Uh, I think he gets stoned. And then what does he do? He gets to the next town and he starts preaching again. Like, this is the zeal that you see with Paul. So what's our takeaway? Our takeaway is a couple things. Number one, that God can use you no matter where you're at to proclaim the gospel. And number two, that God recognizes that in Christ, there are no barriers. We're a connected church and there are no socioeconomic lines. There's no racial lines. There's no color lines. There's no gender lines. Instead, God is giving us ability with a, a message that can reach all people. And so with the passion of Paul, let's use that message to get to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you used an amazing man named Paul, but now you can just use average people like us. Help us look for opportunities in our lives so that we can be missionaries. He invented real mission work, but we can continue this tradition of the Christian church to look out for other believers, look out for other people, look out for the poor, look out for those who are in trouble, but ultimately share the gospel, the only thing that can change lives, that you lived and you died and you rose again, and that we have a relationship with you, not because of what we've done, but because of Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. Today we're finishing up talking about the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, for a lot of people, causes mixed feelings and there's a reason for that. 
because of his single-mindedness. When you read, he literally wrote half the New Testament. And when you read about and read what the Apostle Paul says, it's very specific and it's very kind of life-changing. He's saying, now that you're a believer in Christ, that means you change. And that kind of think back to his roots when he was so specific about what God says he takes that seriously. And I think it makes sense that we take that seriously. But he is so specific about what it means to be a dad. He challenges us, right? What does it mean to be a mom? What does it mean to be a male? And what does it mean to be a female? And he challenges us to say, what does it mean to, if you're a slave owner? And what does it mean if you're not a slave owner? What does it mean if you're free? Like, what do all these things mean uh, as a kid and a child? Like, what it, as an employer? All of these things are challenging. And all of these things uh, push us as a Christian to say, like, what, what's next? And as a guy, I think as you just kind of think about the life of Paul, I'm 100% sure I won't want to hang out with him. I mean, he sounds kind of miserable to be around, not because he wasn't such a great Christian, but because he was. Just think about his single-mindedness to the task. It says that once he understood the gospel, remember, he, he goes immediately into Damascus and starts to preach. They want to kill him. He goes to another town. They want to kill him. He does that there. He studies for 10 years. He teaches for a year. They estimate he traveled 10,000 miles on foot for his three and possibly four missionary journeys. That's not even counting what he travels on a ship. He's dedicated to a singular mission. And it, it, with all these accomplishments and starting all these different churches and running half the New Testament, you would think like at the end of his life, like as he faces prison, really, this is ultimately what takes him. He goes and he goes into prison once, which isn't a big deal, like house arrest. But then later on, the Mamertine uh, dungeon, really, in Rome, you can still go see that today. He's, he's in here. And towards the end of his life, he, he comes to this conclusion. It's not about the stuff that I have. I was listening to a story, and I could not find it. I searched and searched and searched. But it was on uh, NPR or something like that. But a, a woman was saying, I thought she was from Australia. She was talking about her grandfather, and when her grandfather died, they're going through his stuff in the closet. And they get to the back of the closet, there's a shoebox, and they open up the shoebox, and it had like four Olympic gold medals in it. And she said, I was blown away at his humility because he never, ever mentioned this. If this was me, and I even thought about going to the Olympics, that would probably be my starter for every conversation I ever had. They're like, would you like the regular oil change? I'm like, I was, almost went to the Olympics. You know what I'm saying, right? And so like, this is how he's, Paul, at the end of his life, has all these things in, in, as far as following and dedication to Christ that would put him towards the top. But he says very simply, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's it. And all this stuff, like if, if God lets me still live, I'm going to continue to proclaim him. And if I die, I'm with Jesus. And I think if our biggest takeaway on this whole earth is A, that God can use you, but B, as God uses you and, and, and puts opportunities in your life, it's very, very simple. Do whatever you can to get closer and closer to Jesus. And I find that God's going to open the doors for you and your life. Let's pray. Uh, dear Jesus, you appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. You changed who he was and you used him. Uh, use us in that unique way. Uh, help us look at all the opportunities you have, the gifts you've given us. And not that that puffs us up, but instead these are gifts you've given us. How can we use these gifts for your church? How can we use these gifts in the people, lives that we live with? And how can we proclaim so clearly who you are? Because ultimately, if we keep living on this earth, that's fantastic. We get to give you glory. But if we die, we get to be with you. So it does not matter in the end. We push all that aside and see what Paul proclaims so very clearly, the sufficiency of you as our Savior. And that life doesn't really happen and identity doesn't happen until we find it in you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Mike here with Time of Grace. 
We hope that you love this podcast and that it helps you grow in your faith and get closer to Jesus. And we would love more and more people to have that experience too. Which is why I want to ask you today to leave a review of this podcast. With just a few moments of your time, you can help us spread the word to more people who can meet more and more of Jesus. Besides, what else are you going to do? Look at your phone? Check the weather again? Go on social media? Binge on Netflix? Okay, I won't shame you, but we'd love a review. Thanks. Thanks for sharing this podcast, and we'll talk to you soon.